1: and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program.
2: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Heritage Foundation. My name is Lee Edwards, and I am a fellow here at the Heritage Foundation, but also I'm going to put in a plug and say I'm also chairman of the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. And we're so pleased and honored to have our special guests with us this afternoon as we honor an extraordinarily horrific event, uh, the Holodomor, the Forced Famine. It's a most solemn and tragic event in not only the history of Ukraine, but also in indeed the world. Eight decades ago, Ukraine and the Ukrainian Cossack and other areas to its east, a great stretch of territory with some 40 million inhabitants, was like one vast Belsen, Belsen, the dreaded Nazi concentration camp. A quarter of the rural population, men, women, and children, lay dead or dying. The rest in various stages of debilitation, with no strength to bury their families or neighbors. At the same time, as at Belson, well-fed squads of police or party officials supervised the victims. This was the climax of the so-called revolution from above, as Stalin put it. In which he and his associates crushed two elements seen as irremediably hostile to the regime, the Soviet regime, the peasantry of the USSR as a whole and the Ukrainian nation. Now, those are not my words, ladies and gentlemen. Those are the words of Robert Conquest, of Robert Conquest, the beginning of his extraordinary, seminal, searing work, Harvest of Shame which was published in 1986, shocked the world and led to a new word in the Glossary of Politics, Holodomor. Another shame, and we cannot avoid mentioning this, another shame resulting from the genocide, is the role played by Walter Duranti, the Moscow correspondent of the New York Times, who received, believe it or not, and I'm sure most of you do know it, the Pulitzer Prize, the Pulitzer Prize for, quote, dispassionate interpretive reporting of the news from Russia. What Duranti dispassionately reported after visiting Ukraine was, quote, there is no famine or actual starvation, nor is there likely to be. That's what he wrote after seeing with his own eyes. It's beyond shameful, beyond shameful, that at the same time Durante privately told reporter friends like Eugene Lyons, who reported it, that he, Durante, estimated the famine victims in Ukraine at around 7 million. Can you imagine the rank hypocrisy of that? And it's more than shameful that the New York Times has never asked the Pulitzer Committee to revoke its prize to Walter Durante, whom fellow correspondent Malcolm Muggeridge, who knew him and worked with him in Moscow, uh, Muggeridge described Durante as, quote, the greatest liar of any journalist I have met in 50 years of journalism. In the final pages of Harvest of Shame, Conquest writes that, quote, the main lesson seems to be that communist ideology provided the motivation for an unprecedented massacre of men Women and children. More recently, we're indebted to the Pulitzer Prize winning historian Anne Applebaum for Red Famine, her study of the Holodomor. As the Christian Science Monitor wrote, Applebaum chronicles in almost unbearably intimate detail the ruin wrought by Ukraine and on Ukraine by Joseph Stalin and the Soviet state apparatus he, Stalin, had built on suspicion, paranoia, and fear. The whole of the More is the classic example of Soviet genocide, its longest and broadest experiment of russification, the destruction of the Ukrainian nation. Those are the words of Raphael Lemkin, the originator of the word genocide. And so we are here today, we are here this afternoon, to join with the U.S. Committee for Ukrainian Holodomor Genocide Awareness, which declares, quote, It is our duty, it is our duty as citizens of a free society to recognize, acknowledge, and promote the truth about atrocities against humanity whenever and wherever they occur. It is now my pleasure to introduce to you Michael Salkiew, Chairman of the U.S. Holodomor Committee an outstanding Ukrainian American, a tireless freedom fighter whom I've been privileged to know and work with for many, many years. Ladies and gentlemen, Michael Salkiu.
3: We thank you for that introduction. Minister Klimkin, Ambassador Chowley, members of the Diplomatic Corps, honored guests, ladies and gentlemen the preamble of the United Nations Convention on Genocide describes the term genocide as, quote, the deliberate and systematic destruction of a racial, political, or cultural group, unquote. The definition in Webster's Dictionary simply describes genocide as, quote, an odious scourge. Although the crime is ancient, the term is fairly new, and it is shocking that in the 20th century alone, genocide has been so calculatingly and effectively used as a political and ideological weapon. Unfortunately, few Western media outlets reported on the onslaught of death and starvation in Ukraine 85 years ago. As was mentioned by Lee, some, including New York Times correspondent Walter Durante, even went so far as to claim that mass starvation in Ukraine never existed but we are here to say otherwise. Knowledge of the Ukrainian Holdomor must be an integral segment of world history, and the unfortunate act of genocide perpetrated among the Ukrainian nation must be recognized worldwide so that history never repeats itself again. Our united theme in this 85th commemorative year is crystal clear. Ukraine remembers, the world acknowledges. And rightfully so, steps toward this direction have already been accomplished, as witnessed by the dedication of the Hodor Memorial in November of 2015. Through curriculum within our high schools, a revocation campaign of Walter Durante's Pulitzer Prize Recognition of the Ukrainian genocide and commemorative resolutions by national legislatures worldwide and in states throughout the United States. The findings of the commission of the Ukraine famine in the United States Congress that concluded, quote, Joseph Stalin and those around him perpetrated genocide upon the Ukrainian people. And no more than a month ago, the passage of Senate Resolution 435, which uses the findings of the commission of the Ukraine famine to recognize the genocidal nature of the Ukrainian Holodomor. I know of no better way to describe the depths of the atrocities perpetrated upon the Ukrainian nation than through an assessment by the Council General of Italy in 1933. And I quote, The Ukrainian people are about to go into an eclipse, which could well turn out to be a night without end because Russian imperialism, with its present tender mercies, is capable of wiping a nation, nay, a civilization, right off the face of the earth, if we aren't very careful." As many of you know, Ukraine is seeking worldwide attention of the Hordomar as a genocide of the Ukrainian nation. I am pleased to introduce His Excellency Valeri Chali, Ukraine's Ambassador to the United States, to deliver a few remarks in this regard and to introduce our keynote speaker. The Embassy of Ukraine is also a co sponsor of today's commemorative events. Mr. Ambassador.
4: Your Excellencies, Representatives of the State Department and Congress, Assistant Secretary Mitchell, Deputy Assistant Secretary Kent, uh, all our friends, Diplomatic Corp., the Ukraine, you did a great job for, not only for us, support us in the recognition of the truth. And this is our fight, not for truth. And Mikhail Osavka just described how it's happened and what we have now, but what's important for us Ukrainians because every of us have relatives or grandfathers, grandmothers, children as die during this time. And this uh, now is a part of our fighting for minds, for people minds. When we open our we've been shocked. Absolutely shocked. Because uh, 10 years ago we saw that that's a tragedy of all the people in the Soviet Union during Stalin regime. But what we find now in our KGB former archives. This was target. The main target was Ukrainians, Were Ukrainians. And this opened our eyes. We understand what could happen if we not fighting against that. And another thing, what's important for us. I'm, uh, when I was in the university as a historian, I personally tried to investigate some stories in Vinitsa region. Ambassador Ivanovich knows this region in my native city. And what I find there, that Ukrainians in Vinnytsia city and many other regions keep uh, rifles, try to fight and defend themselves against the Soviet Bolsheviks' attempts to bring them to death. And so it was res- resistance. It was not just waiting for something, but it was real opposition defending their families. Unfortunately, at that time, Ukrainians lost against very big Russian Bolshevik army. Now second attempt undermine us and attack us. So we really appreciate as American partners and all our partners from European Union countries, from Canada to Australia, uh, all, all the people of goodwill support us in that. Because it's fighting not only on us, it's a fighting against those who were in a previous time who were in the previous time and now tried to you know, destroy international order, try to change rules in the world. No way. We will not give up. And we once again appreciate you stand for with us. Thank you so much for that. And let me introduce uh, Paulo Klimkin, who is uh, doing many things, not only as uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs of Ukraine, but also as politician in Ukraine, doing well just to uh, communicate with people around the globe, just have more support for Ukrainians and for Ukraine for such very important time. So please, Minister Klimkin.
5: Thanks, Valery. Dear colleagues, dear friends, excellences, Of course, it's a a special honor. It's a special honor for me to open uh, this forum commemorating the 85th anniversary of the Ukrainian Holodomor genocide. Probably one of the most horrible tragedies, uh, if not only for Ukraine's history but of the whole world. Uh, For everybody of us, uh, it's personal. You've just said uh, it's a duty of everyone in the civilized world to recognize it. I remember very well uh, the moment when uh, I was sitting together with uh, Tim Snyder, Presenting uh, his new book uh, at the time, Bloodlands, and uh, we were discussing uh, the trenches and the searches in Ukrainian history. And after that, uh, I told him uh, the story of uh, of my family. My mother-in-law has never seen two her older brothers, simply uh, simply trying to. Uh, Not to explain, but to give him uh, a sense uh, how it happened. Uh, So, for us, uh, it's sacred and personal. And it became, in a way, a kind of national DNA, our understanding. And your respect is also respect... uh, for, uh, for us Ukrainians, for our understanding how, uh, how we live through this uh, horrible, horrible time. And of course, many, many thanks uh, to the Heritage Foundation, uh, one of the leading conservative research centers in the United States for, for hosting this, uh, this important event. It's, uh, it's, it's really special. So on behalf of uh, every citizen of Ukraine, let me first uh, thank sincerely to all our American uh, friends and partners. Of course, all US senators, uh, in particular, co-chairs of the Ukrainian Senate caucus, senators Rob Portman and Dick Durbin, who are co-sponsors of the US Senate resolution, (coughs) 435 passed on october 3 2018 that recognizes the findings of the commission on the ukraine famine as submitted to congress Uh, look uh, for some people here in a way like you said uh, it's a special duty for ukrainians uh, it was such a big topic uh, in ukrainian media the sense of recognition the sense of acknowledgement the sense of uh, recognized uh, and uh, and supported uh, by friends and of course all members of the us congress who also worked hard on advancing the house uh, companion resolution Of course, the U.S. administration for its very strong and committed support and assistance uh, to Ukraine. And actually, which is now unique, I believe, uh, all 19 U.S. state authorities who issued resolutions, proclamations and declarations recognizing Holodomor as genocide or announcing states commemoration of Holodomor's victims. Actually, every recognition or every proclamation was uh, a very special news for every Ukrainian, believe me. And of course, our country is grateful to all members of the Ukrainian community, all members, uh, organizations, uh, activists, uh, for their tremendous efforts and achievements and raising awareness about the Holodomor here. Look, this 19th proclamation is a real result of, of these efforts. And, of course, facilitating the U.S. support for uh, the historic native land and its people who are currently on the global front line, fighting against uh, the Russian aggression, and actually defending uh, our shared values, the sense of uh, our transatlantic community, and, of course, uh, restoring respect for the international law and ensuring security of the world. Uh, Look, dear friends, uh, we gathered tonight to talk about and analyze the terrible uh, famine that happened 85 years ago to the people who lived on the richest and most fertile lands and were known uh, as hardworking farmers. And the whole attempt uh, of Holodomor, the whole plan, the whole concept, the whole strategy was simply to uh, destroy the backbone of the Ukrainian nations. People who were committed to land, people who were committed uh, to traditions, people who were opposing any collectivization, people who were opposing uh, socialism uh, and and Soviets. Stalin's actions resulted in the death by starvation of between uh, 7 and 10 million people. In fact, we have to admit we don't many how people died during Holodomor. It's still an issue of further histori- historical research. And it's our duty also to find out about everyone who died over uh, these uh, tragic times. I, uh, I don't like to bombard you with numbers. It's not a sense of, uh, of, of deliver, get across this emotion, but... Uh, But uh, one number should be definitely mentioned. Just imagine June 1933. It was one of the worst moments of uh, Holodomor. Ukrainian villages were dying at the rate of 34,560 people per day. That means 24 per minute, 24 per minute in all of the whole month of June, 1933. Even comparing with the famous Battle of Verdun, uh, uh, you you see the the depth of the strategy. And among uh, the children, one of three perished because of Holodomor and, uh, and collectivization. The whole Ukrainian renaissance, Ukrainian act- intellectuals, were totally extinct during Holodomor and and following, uh, and following years. Overall, Ukrainian population... Uh, has been reduced by as much as 25%. So it was uh, completely different Ukraine and different Ukrainian nation after, after simply three years of Holodomor. And paradoxically, in the, in the 30s, Holodomor was virtually unknown here in the Western world. You've mentioned well, a couple of... Uh, you know, greatest people who uh, who did a lot uh, to raise awareness about Holodomor, who uh, in the same way tried to raise awareness about uh, Soviet uh, Stalin totalitarian concentration camp state. But the Soviet propaganda actively blocked all these attempts. It was uh, really almost unknown. And I believe we... Uh, we simply deem our sacred duty to return the Holodomor genocide to, uh, to the whole memory of and uh, conscience of, uh, of the mankind. This tragedy has never to take place again. And it's simply time to call the crime by its, uh, by its name. Of course, it's critically important to also understand correctly the causes of, uh, of this genocide. Of course, uh, it's about communist regime who, uh, who orchestrated it. But it was a deliberate attempt to target, as I have said, the backbone of Ukrainian nation, to destroy it, and simply eliminate it, uh, as uh, as a reality. Such an artificial hunger became a punishment for the Ukrainian nation for proclaiming independent Ukrainian state in uh, 1917-1920. And of course, a preventive preventive strike against repeating such an attempt in the future. And at that time, the whole notion of hybrid war was not yet development. Uh, But in a way, Holodomor was uh, an attempt uh, to wage this hybrid war by any means uh, against against the Ukrainian nation. And from this uh, from this point of view, Holodomor and the present occupation of uh, the Crimea and the part of Donbass stand as, as true Unfortunately, tragic realities of the same war that Russian Empire was waging and uh, still has been waging against our country, not for years, but but for centuries. For for more than four years now, Ukraine is a target of of the Russian aggression. And the sense of uh, Kremlin's war it's not just to target Ukraine. It's not just to occupy part of our territory, but to destroy free and democratic Ukraine, to try to uh, weaken up and fragment Ukraine, and not to have Ukrainian as uh, freedom-loving nations. Because Ukraine, uh, as such, is a total negation to any Russian attempts to uh, retain uh, their empire. So, the existing sanctions against the Russian Federation must not only remain in place but be also further strengthened until the Kremlin complies with its commitment under international law and ceases its attempts to invade and annex Ukraine's sovereign territories. Dear friends, it's a uh, it's, of course, it's, it's difficult to talk about uh, Holodomor just in uh, historical or political terms. It's so, uh, it's so emotional for, for every one of us. Like, in the same way, uh, it's, uh, it's difficult to explain the emotion behind uh, our fight against uh, the Russian aggression, but also our fight for the future of free and democratic, and European Ukraine. But it's it's critically important for every one of us. It's critically important for Ukraine that uh, we stand shoulder to shoulder with uh, our allies and friends here. Our, I would not say bilateral relationship, but... uh, our unique interaction u.s uh, standing by side by side with us it's the most important factor in our fight against the russian aggression and because of us because of ukrainians we we will definitely win against the russian aggression it's, uh, it's because of us uh, able to fight and committed to our, to our future. It's something which, uh, which is important for us in the sense of our DNA inside and our future as, uh, as a goal in front of us. So, taking this opportunity, I wish uh, all of you every success in your noble work for benefit of Ukraine and uh, and United States. The whole sense of uh, of this event, this 19 proclamations, is a sign of respect to all Ukrainians, to uh, to Ukrainian nation but it's also something which uh, helps us to go forward, to, uh, to fight and uh, to be successful. And uh, many, many thanks uh, for everybody coming over here, despite such a weather, which we probably brought uh, from Kiev. Everybody of you, being together with us uh, on this day is something which, uh, which is close to every Ukrainian heart. Thanks again. Thank
3: you, Thank you Foreign Minister Klimkin, for your inspiring remarks and we're obviously grateful to your government for bringing the issue of the Holodomor to the world's attention for their recognition. And on behalf of the Ukrainian-American community, I can say that we join you in that plight, and we will, we will work tirelessly until all 50 states in the United States recognize the Holodomor as such. As I mentioned earlier, we have a wide array of experts and friends amongst us today to offer their thoughts and their reflections about the Ukrainian Holodomor. I am proud to introduce our next speaker, someone who is familiar with the European region as his previous position was president of the Center for European Policy Analysis, or CEPa. We are honored to have with us the Assistant Secretary of State for Europe and Eurasian Affairs, the Honorable Wes Mitchell, who has done an amazing job advancing the bilateral re- relations between Ukraine and the United States. Please, welcome to the podium the Honorable Assistant Secretary of State, Wes Mitchell.
6: Thank you for that that kind introduction, Michael. And it really is an honor to be here and see so many friends, Ukrainian and American friends, and um, to be here alongside uh, Foreign Minister uh, Klimkin. Where are you? There you are. Uh, Ambassador Charlie, Senator Portman, and... um, And and I want to thank the Heritage Foundation for really shining an event, uh, shining a a spotlight on an event in history that gets, I think, inadequate attention. Um, As uh, Pavlo mentioned, we are here today to mark a very somber occasion, and that's the 85th anniversary of the Holodomor. Today we recall the millions of innocent Ukrainians whom the brutal Soviet regime starved to death by engineering and executing a catastrophic man-made famine. The Holodomor was one of the most barbaric acts of the 20th century and should be recognized as such. This crime against humanity was the result of a deliberate policy whereby Joseph Stalin seized Ukrainian land and crops with the explicit political Goal of starving ukraine as a people people and as a nation these cruel policies turned one of the world's most fertile regions a land that is famous for its rich black earth into a place of horror and death moscow's efforts to starve the people of ukraine and the kuban region a place populated by ethnic ukrainians were undertaken with a clear political goal in mind. NKVD executioners eagerly carried out the order of Stalin and his henchmen, who sought to break the will of the Ukrainian people, to cow them into submission, to destroy their identity and national aspirations. At the time, many Western intellectuals, motivated by an admiration of communism, and a skewed ideology of collectivism ignored or covered up these events. I think it's important to remember that. Eighty-five years later, it is remarkable that the Holodomor, like so many of the other crimes of communism, have not received their due attention in the West. We must never forget that they occurred, and we must never forget why they occurred. Today, Russians are dying I'm sorry, Ukrainians are dying as a result of policies directed by the Russian government against the very fabric of Ukraine's national existence. Moscow is trying to conceal this ongoing aggression, but its goals are very clear. Russia seeks a Ukrainian vassal state, deprived of sovereignty, beholden to Moscow and within its sphere of influence. It wants to prevent Ukrainians from choosing their own future. In pursuit of that goal, Moscow's aggression in eastern Ukraine continues unabated. More than 10,000 Ukrainians have died as a result of this Russia-conceived, led, and sustained conflict. Russia also continues its brutal occupation of Crimea. Those who speak out against this illegal occupation or even express their Ukrainian identity or loyalty to Ukraine are subjected to physical abuse and imprisonment by Russian occupation forces. Beyond this direct military threat, Moscow seeks to unravel Ukraine from within by undermining the democratic institutions that Ukrainians have so painstakingly created. The aim is to reverse the progress achieved since the revolution of dignity. Social media and cyber warfare May be new tools in the Russian toolkit, but the underlying blueprint looks quite Soviet disinformation, propaganda, and what the KGB used to call active measures. As we remember Ukraine's difficult past and discuss current challenges, we must not lose sight of the bright future within Ukraine's reach. Tomorrow, Secretary Pompeo and Foreign Minister Klimkin will relaunch the U.S. Ukraine Strategic Partnership Commission. Delegations from our two countries will hold important day-long talks as we work together to advance Ukraine on its western path. The underlying goal of our meetings is to help Ukraine realize its tremendous potential and to take its place in the family of western democracies. As my friend Pavlo has said, our goal is to ensure the success of Project Ukraine. Just as we must never forget the Holodomor, we must honor those who bled and died on the Maidan and continue to bleed and die in the country's east. We stand with Ukrainians in their struggle for a brighter future, free from vassalage, free from corruption, with a government that is accountable to its people. The North Star of our Ukrainian policy will remain our support for the Ukrainian nation state, its sovereignty, self determination, and territorial integrity within internationally recognized borders a sovereign ukraine a sovereign georgia a sovereign belarus are our surest bulwark against russian neo-imperialism ukraine is at the center of a geopolitical struggle for the future of europe ukraine's success will resonate from the end from one end of europe to the other It will cast, I think, a very harsh light on Project Putin with its authoritarianism, kleptocracy, and military aggression. Russia's aggression against Ukraine has only solidified Ukrainians' desire for a future free of imperial control and post-Soviet corruption. It has bolstered Ukrainians' unity and desire to embrace a Western path Ukrainians increasingly see themselves as European and not just in geographic terms. Russia has, therefore, I think, uh, itself pushed Ukrainians further from Moscow's orbit. This trend will continue as long as Moscow remains unwilling to respect its neighbor's right to choose their own God-given destinies. So on this, the 85th anniversary of Holodomor, we remember the We remember the horrors uh, that the Ukrainian people endured. Um, We remember the millions of victims, the young, the old, the countless innocents. We honor their memory and recommit to ensuring that they will never be forgotten. We also recall the resilience of the Ukrainian spirit, which I think Pavlo has fittingly eulogized, a spirit that could not be crushed even during this horrible chapter of history. Ukrainians have repeatedly shown they will not be beaten down or deterred from charting their own course. Ukrainians are resolute in their pursuit of freedom and liberty, opposition to an authoritarian, Stalin-admiring Russian leadership. We thus look forward to a better future, one in which Ukraine is stable, prosperous, democratic, and free. Mindful of the past, the United States stands with Ukraine and its people, in pursuit of that brighter future. Thank you.
3: Assistant Secretary Mitchell, thank you for joining us and for your true words of support. We are honored that the State Department is participating in this forum to bring further awareness about this little-known crime against humanity perpetrated by the Soviet government in Ukraine, in 1932-33. Equally, I'd like to recognize and thank Ambassador Marie Yovanovitch, um, U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, for joining us today um, during your working visit here to the United States. Welcome, Madam Ambassador. Recognition of the Houdemora's genocide was passed by the United States Senate on October 4, 2008, the same day as the Candle of Remembrance International Commemoration was winding its way throughout the United States. Leading the effort in the United States Senate for Holdomar S. Res. 435 was the co-chair of the Senate Ukraine Caucus. Senator Portman has been a true friend of Ukraine and has supported Ukraine in an array of legislation, including increased sanctions against Russia, the Freedom Support Act of 2014, and increased military assistance to defend against russian aggression it's truly an honor and a pleasure to have with us today and thus gives me truly a pleasure to introduce to you the honorable rob portman senator from ohio
7: michael thank you so much and it is wonderful to be back here at this beautiful room and uh, i want to thank you all here for hosting this, but also for allowing us to have this opportunity uh, to remind the world about what happened 85 years ago. And the message is very simple, that these horrors can never be repeated. Uh, I'm honored to be with a lot of friends here today, including friends from the Ukrainian government. Um, Ambassador, it's always good to see you. Ambassador Charlie and I spent a lot of time together, all those legislative priorities you talked about. Uh, He can take a large measure of credit for, since he is working it hard on Capitol Hill, probably the most aggressive and uh, peripatetic of the ambassadors, uh, which is a positive thing. Um, But also, um, I I just want to make a special note that I really enjoyed the discussion earlier, uh, Minister Klimkin, about the history. And for you to go into uh, some of those stories is very, very powerful. And having been in your country again uh, only a few months ago in the spring, and having traveled to the contact line, and having driven, uh, uh, flown very uh, closely to the ground in a helicopter to get there and back, uh, and seeing some of the uh, the black earth that you and Wes Mitchell talked about, and the incredible productivity of that land today, and just thinking of the devastation that was wreaked on those people on that land, and, and... Part of this today obviously is us remembering the horrors but also remembering the resilience of the Ukrainian people and uh, Ukrainian people have been through a lot haven't they and uh, and yet continue to rebound and uh, so this is an opportunity for us today to to both mourn the loss of life and discuss a very somber historical atrocity, uh, but also to celebrate the strength and resiliency of the Ukrainian people. Uh, I think we're really lucky to have Wes Mitchell at the State Department. I don't know if you agree with me. I mean, just heard his remarks. I hope you do. Uh, But uh, he's not only here today and he's present, but he is very engaged on this issue. And if he didn't want to be, he would probably have to be because uh, one of my staff he stole uh, is down there with him. And uh, so he has... Very, very, no, just kidding. He, he, would, he would be that way. And one reason that, frankly, um, you know, we love working with you so much is that you have, in your heart, uh, a real concern and care about Ukraine. And the fact that Ukraine is a model, in many respects, for uh, what can happen uh, throughout Eastern and Central Europe. And um, what happens in Ukraine, as you indicated, will be felt all over Europe, but really all over the world. So we must stand strong with, with Ukraine. But um, My friend Sandy Levin is here. Now, Sandy is uh, choosing to retire from Congress. Uh, He didn't lose his election. Instead, I just found out, which I didn't even know, that his son, who I have met, is actually his successor. So he's starting an empire. Um, Your legacy continues, my friend. And I've known Sandy and his family for a long time. We're going to miss him here in Washington, but he will continue to be a voice for Ukraine. Uh, And I, I look forward to continuing to work with him in his role on the outside The president of the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America is here with us, Andy Fute. And I usually have an easier time finding Andy in Kiev than I do in uh, Cleveland, Ohio, where he's supposed to be from. Uh, But he is a dear friend and has been, along with you, Ambassador, one of the great advocates for some of the legislative successes that that we've had. So, and I I think my friend Marcy Captor is on her way, too, uh, who, again, she's from Ohio as well, has been a a leader on these issues for many, many years. We're we're here, again, to to mourn the senseless killing. And uh, it's amazing. It's amazing that that could have gone on with so little recognition. Um, Eighty-five years ago, millions of Ukrainians suffered under these policies, these Soviet policies of using starvation as a weapon. And it's interesting, Minister, you talked about this being, in a sense, the first hybrid war. It was uh, kinetic, but it was beyond that, wasn't it? And um, it was psychological. It was an attempt to really extinguish the flame. And there's Marcy Kaptur just as we're talking about her. Um, But we won't forget. We can never forget. And um, as co chair of the Ukrainian caucus in the Senate, and someone who has the honor of representing, I think, about 50,000 Ukrainian Americans in Ohio, Andy says more. Uh, I like that. You know, we've got to continue to do everything we can to support policies in the United States Congress that support the aspirations of the Ukrainian people and ensure that Ukraine is able to protect those people and protect its borders, its sovereign borders. Um, As I indicated, I was on the contact line recently, and I got to see a lot of very brave Ukrainian troops risking their lives on behalf of their country, great patriots, uh, but also more broadly on behalf of all of us standing up once again to the aggression, this time coming from Russia. While we remember somberly those atrocities that took place 85 years ago, we stand together today, both to ensure that the horrors of the past remain in those history books and to be sure they are never repeated, but also to hold up the resiliency and strength of the Ukrainian people. And um, again, I saw this firsthand during, during my visits recently in I know that many of you in this room have been committed to this cause for for many many years, and sometimes wonder, are we are we making progress? Well, we are. Uh, when I was there just a few months ago, uh, Ambassador Yovanovich, who was with us here today, uh, hosted me at a time when literally the Stinger missiles were on their way across the ocean from the United States of America to be established. In Ukraine as a means of protecting those borders and protecting those people, not in an offensive capacity, but yes, serious weaponry that enables Ukraine to be able to stand on its own. And I hope that we can continue in that spirit together. And uh, I thank you all for the honor of letting me come by today and look forward to continuing to work closely with you.
3: Thank you, Senator Portman, for your outstanding leadership, your stalwart support, being a true advocate and a voice for Ukraine, and obviously for Ukrainian American constituents in Ohio. So, Senator, thank you. Thank you for your support in being with us today. Amongst us this afternoon are also several members of Congress who have stood shoulder to shoulder with the Ukrainian community before its renewed independence in 1991 and thereafter. Of special mention is our next next speaker, who everyone in Washington knows, everyone in Ukraine knows, and the entire Ukrainian-American community knows. He has been a true supporter of the Ukrainian community for the decades that he has been in the House of Representatives. Known for co-founding the Congressional Ukrainian Caucus in 1997, our next speaker was instrumental in graduating Ukraine from the Jackson-Vanik Amendment in 2006 support for the Ukrainian Freedom Support Act in 2004. But in terms of the Holdemor, he is illustriously known for his sponsorship of the Holdemor Memorial in Washington, D.C. Currently, he is the main sponsor of the U.S. House Resolution on the Holdemor, which recognizes it as a genocide. It is truly an honor and a pleasure to warmly welcome the Honorable Sander Levin of Michigan
8: well thank you very very much hi Marcy as I was thinking about this and I'm so glad to be here I know the foreign minister has been here, the ambassador is the assistant secretary, and uh, Marsh and I came to the Congress the same year. As I was preparing, I'm going to be in Ukraine a week from today, and as I was preparing remarks, I began to read... And I was looking for a comment that I saw when I was, I think, in my early 20s. And it was by someone, and I haven't been able to find that exact remark. I thought I did when I started reading and saw one of the commentaries about who wrote in those years it was something like this I haven't found it exactly it was an attempt to minimize the famine and to argue that the number of those who died was exaggerated and it wasn't as many millions as some people said. I was astounded. I never thought uh, through that I might be in the Congress and working with others to try to make sure that uh, memories were correct about what happened. Uh, But uh, here we are. And as I was reading, I came across in the book that I think many of you have read by Robert Conquest, The Harvest of Sorrow, his reference to an unpublished memoir of Boris Pasternak, where he said, In the early 1930s, there was a movement among writers to travel to the collective farms and gather material about the new life of the village. I wanted to be with everyone else, and likewise made such a trip with the aim of writing a book. What I saw could not be expressed in words. There was such inhuman, unimaginable misery, such a terrible disaster, that it began to seem almost abstract it would not fit within the bounds of consciousness i fell ill for an entire year i could not write so i went back and looked at one of the many statements that i and many others uttered it over the years about the famine And I just want to read a small part of it. We in the United States must persist in standing with those living under oppressive and tyrannical regimes as they struggle for their freedom. Part of this struggle is to remember the brutal acts of these regimes and these victims. Preventing the recurrence of crimes against humanity such as the Ukrainian famine-genocide begins with remembering the tragedies of the past and honoring those who suffered so greatly as a result. So that what we're trying to do is to help remember the tragedies of the past and also to honor those who suffered so greatly as a result. I think that is so much a part of our obligation, and it's been my privilege all these years working with so many of you to be a small part of it.
3: Thank you very, very much. Congressman, I know that I speak for everyone assembled here when I say how truly appreciative we are of your dedication to this issue. And I know that the whole memorial, if anything else like that, is a testament to your resolve to bring more awareness to the whole and that awareness, obviously, to being being in terms of its recognition in the future. Thank you.
8: upon to help bring this about. And I think it's such a magnificent rendition. It is magnificent. And we lucked out. We had a big fight. First of all, getting it done, and then finding a place. And um, all that battle worked out because... Mm-hmm. It's in a marvelous location, and also the rendition is so moving. So I want to thank you, Michael, and all of you, and my buddy, Marcy. Thank you.
3: Thank you once again, Congressman. Congressman. The architect, um, Congressman Levin, for your information, the architect of the memorial is with us today, um, Larissa Kurilas. So we'd like to acknowledge Larissa Kurilas as well being with us. I'd now like to call to the podium another co-chair of the Congressional Ukrainian Caucus who also has worked tirelessly to assist in Ukraine's development and to bring awareness of the whole of the more. And I think our next speaker has traveled to Ukraine more often than any of us in this room combined. So it's truly an honor and it's a pleasure to introduce the Honorable Marcy Kaptur of Ohio. Congressman.
1: Good afternoon. Thank you all for being here. And uh, I'm very honored to be a part of this program and to go on record in stalwart support of the continuing efforts to recognize the Holodomir and to um, commemorate those innocents' millions, over 7 million who lost their lives, uh, a long way from the United States. But I'm proud of the people of the United States for exhibiting a commitment to pursuing the truth, no matter how long it takes. As a young member of Congress, uh, many years ago, early in the 1980s, I introduced a special resolution to uh, recognize that, in fact, the holodomir had occurred. And since that time, have pursued um, efforts in our country to release documents uh, that exist uh, that tell the full story as we knew it back during that period, and uh, it has been a continuing uh, work uh, to uh, reveal the full truth of what our government knew and um, to make it available to the future. My first degree came from the University of Wisconsin, and its motto, if you go to the foundation stones of the university, are to pursue uh, the truth uh, through continual sifting and winnowing. And we continue that today as we commemorate the lives of those who um, were subjugated to a type of tyranny that is hard for the citizens of the United States to understand. I think that this particular poster here is beautiful. Thank you for those who created it, for that continuing flame that burns in the hearts of each of you who are here uh, today. I want to thank Michael Salkiew and the Ukrainian-American diaspora and the community for allowing us to be here today and commemorate and remember uh, the sacrilegious uh, horror that uh, this 85th anniversary uh, reminds us of, uh, of the uh, Holodomir uh, genocide forced upon the people of a land who lived under an utter tyrannical regime. When I introduced the bill in the late 1980s to create the World War II Memorial, and it took us 17 years to construct here, it's important for the American people to know that if you go, if you walk our Mall of Democracy here in our nation's capital, you will first probably see the Washington Monument, which represents the founding of our republic in the 18th century. And yes, George Washington, our first president. And you will see just west of there the Lincoln Memorial that represents uh, the 19th century and our struggle to preserve the Union. And yes, it is a memorial to a president, but um, I think he would agree, uh, more importantly, to a nation that was able to hold itself together and preserve the Union is the most important contribution of the 19th century. And then the 20th century memorial, the World War II memorial, Uh, not to a person, but to a generation that preserved liberty over tyranny. And as we commemorate this genocide today, we think about the march of history, we think about the role of truth, and we think about what the people of Ukraine, of subjugated Ukraine, can teach each of us. Teach each of us about their history, but teach each of us about the price of liberty and the very imprimatur, the very reason for the existence of this country. So Ukraine's existence and the Holodomir memories remind us of the distinction between liberty and tyranny and our own establishment as a nation now, the oldest democratic republic on the face of the earth, though one of the youngest countries. Um, As I think back to my own life, I learned how to bake bread in Ukraine in the village of our grandparents who emigrated to the United States um, in the early part of the 20th century. They were not wealthy people. They were people who thought that they could leave because they weren't allowed to graze their cow anymore. Uh, On the land it was being collectivized, and the Bolsheviks were beginning to gain power. And so they came to the United States in hopes, as so many did, that they could return, and that was never to happen. And so going back to that village many years later, uh, two generations later actually, and discovering what had happened has been one of the great discoveries of my own life, and uh, their, in, the intertwining of their history with my own is probably one of the major reasons I'm in the Congress of the United States. So I'm grateful to the people of Ukraine. I'm grateful to those who never forgot their history and who instruct us on the true cost of liberty. As I think back to some of the people that I met in that village, uh, one woman in particular, a woman named Maria, who's no longer living, who risked her life and the life of her sister for us to come to that village during the Soviet-occupied period of Ukraine. And they were not politicians. They were not educated people. They were just dear people who wanted to know something of the outside world, and they had been blocked from those truths for their entire lives. They had suffered. They had been bashed. Uh, banished to the stands to Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan. Uh, their relatives had lost their lives. And I can remember laughing with these women in that village where Maria had, during the 1930s, scraped with her fingernails the ground in order to dig out one onion to make soup during the Holodomir. And her sharing those memories with us and taking us to the places where those who died were buried. Uh, a place that you really wouldn't see very easily if you didn't know the ground well, and being able to observe then not just the suffering that they had endured, but what Hitler had done to those to that particular village in burning down all the homes and turning the church in which our grandparents were married into a stable. The um, The memories of that stay with me, and... Never did I believe in my own lifetime that I would be able to witness uh, Ukraine coming into the modern era. I wasn't sure what would happen in 1989 when the Berlin Wall uh, fell and ultimately Ukraine uh, became a free nation a few years later, that perhaps our trip there several years before that had contributed to a change. And I'm sure many of you had done the same Thing in your own way, um, and as freedom-loving people had helped to change the course of that very important part of the world. Uh, Stalin understood control of the precious lands of Ukraine was power. And subjugating all those people and killing them allowed him to gain command over a territory he never should have possessed. So to know that you recognize the truth and that you're gathered here today and that you are the children of freedom and that you are carrying forward the flame of liberty uh, gives me great confidence in the future, not just of the United States of America, but of Ukraine. Thank you for being here today, and thank you for remembering and commemorating. God bless you all.
3: Congresswoman Captor, thank you for your most eloquent remarks. Thank you for reminiscing about your family in Ukraine, obviously what they have experienced and what Ukraine is experiencing right now, but more so that we're all carrying the the, the, the flame of freedom together, and obviously in remembrance for the whole of the more. Dear friends, this is the conclusion of our first half of our forum program. I'd like to thank our keynote speakers. Minister Klimkin, the Assistant Secretary of State, Senator Portman, Congressional Ukrainian Co-Chairs, uh, Caucus Co-Chairs Levin and Captor, your words have truly inspired us to continue this fight to illuminate the dark pages of world history so that they do not repeat themselves again. Our sincerest appreci- appreciation for your participation. The Heritage Foundation has graciously offered a small coffee break for us to refresh ourselves, mingle, and discuss the proceedings to date. We will reconvene for a most exciting second portion of the program in 10 minutes. Thank you.
9: Heaven, open. Show your soul. Rise up, all Ukrainian villagers and farmers, all those who were told to die. Rise up and revolt. Come down to the waters and to the lands. Create the eternal memory to remember this 22nd year, this 32nd year. Go down and let me test it. Testing one, two, three. A memorial for those who starved of hunger. A poem by Dimitro Pavlichko. Can you hear it over the music? It sounds OK? Yeah, I think it sounds OK. I think it sounds, if, if the music gets louder, then you can pull the level down. But I think this level works. Maybe a little bit down. A memorial for those, I think right now it's a little loud. It's a little, bring it down, bring the level down. Level down. Music, level down. Hold on, it gets quiet here. That should be good. Good, Lawrence? Thank you. Oh, and does my, Lawrence, does my head clear? You know, no one's going to be able to see it if I'm center. It's going to be blocking. Yeah, I'll go in front of the podium. Actually, I can see light here, so I'll hit it.
1: What you say about the light?
9: No, I think we're good here, right? Man? This works? Yeah, that's fine. Awesome. Thank you. All right.
10: for sharing picnics
11: best greetings to all the participants of the conference, and let me start from a few moments from my life story. I was one of the founding members of the so-called Ukrainian Helsinki Group, or Human Rights Monitor Group, that was established in November 1976. The principal goal of all the Helsinki groups had been to monitor the implementation of the Helsinki further seeds. Thank you very much for your attention. Let me start (laughs)
1: you <laughs>
12: Is, let's put it up, see if he is hilarious. She's got her.
13: No.
1: yo que es que yo
14: digo que que
0: for uh-huh. them. <laughs>
3: I that's the no, that's the ambassador I think looking at it. Just on Welcome back everyone. As the US Committee for Ukrainian Holodomor Genocide Awareness is a conglomerate of Ukrainian American organizations, it requested the Ukrainian Medical Association of North America to produce a short documentary that describes the agonizing stages of starvation that the victims of the Ukrainian Holodomor tragically endured. The result is a 15-minute mini-documentary entitled, When We Starve. The director of When We Starve, former U- Ukrainian Medical Association President Boris Bunyak, is currently in Detroit, Michigan, presenting the documentary to the Board of Education to facilitate the incorporation of Ukraine's 1932-33 Hodomor genocide into the public high school curriculum. Joining us in Dr. Bunyak's stead is his spouse, Lida Bunyak who assisted in the production of this documentary. Mrs. Bunyak is a practicing school psychologist who has worked with children ranging from the ages of 4 to 21, providing individual and group counseling, as well as psychoeducational analysis. The documentary initially shows how important food is for people, not only as a means for survival, but also how food is an essential focal point for both family and community events. Within our perspective, it would seem that food is available almost everywhere we turn. However, what happens to people when food is taken away? Please warmly welcome Mrs. Lida Bunyak.
12: Thank you, Michaela. First of all, I want to thank you for the opportunity to be here. Uh, It sort of uh, began with uh, the Ukrainian Medical Association of North America, Umana, becoming back, uh, uh, becoming integrated again with UCACA, the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America, and that's sort of how we ended up here today. So... uh, Initially, when, we, when they approached my husband, who's a, a physician, he's a gastroenterologist, as, as was indicated, um, we wanted to do a, something to talk about the physiological aspects of starvation. Uh, it was going to start off with a, a, just a PowerPoint presentation. But we spoke to a good friend of ours from Syracuse University, which is where we're from. Uh, he's a professor, uh, Dr. Miso Suchi. And we told him our idea, and he said, nobody's going to want to see a PowerPoint presentation. I was what about a documentary? And we're like... Okay, yeah, I guess we can try to do a documentary. So um, we, we tried approaching a couple directors, but uh, people are busy, there are time constraints, so we actually ended up uh, hiring uh, two young people who are the same age as my children, okay, in the 20s, and they're not even Ukrainian. But what was really wonderful about the experience is that the whole idea is that we don't want to preach to the choir, and by having actually these young people who have in this instance not an ounce of Ukrainian blood, although I like to believe everybody has a little bit of Ukrainian blood in them because it seems to be the case, but in this case they didn't uh to to see if they could uh understand what really happened in the whole of and help us communicate it if they could do it through their lens then we've we've been very successful so um we were fortunate uh, that right at this time, that's when uh, Ann Applebaum's book came out, Red Famine, and my husband uh, rushed down to uh, New York City uh, to the Ukrainian Museum and had an opportunity to interview her for the movie. And uh, one of the most uh, compelling parts of the book that uh, I recall um, – in reading it when we were doing research about the movie was, for example, when they were talking about the mass graves, how uh, there were people who were collecting uh, corpses and being paid, let's say, with loaves of bread. And sometimes what they would do is they would even take people who are not quite dead, and they would actually take them and put them in there. So, yes, it's, it's, it was it was... It was horrifying to to read those things. And then as we did further research, you know, even though we're talking about the physiological aspects of starvation, um, you need to keep in mind that it's all integrated, not just physiological, but what happens to the human psyche, what happens to us spiritually. So um, we, uh, we went to uh, Cleveland and we interviewed a psychiatrist, um, Dr. George Yaskew from Case Western. And he had some very uh, compelling things to tell us about what happens psychologically. Now, you can imagine how you feel when you're hungry. You know, you get uh, lightheaded, irritable. Uh, the longer you wait without food, the more you start thinking about food. Like, gee, I really want that Reese's peanut butter cup. I'm so hungry. You know, but in all in actuality, can you imagine how... These people, what they went through, our Ukrainians, brothers and sisters, where they did not have any food. And even though s- there were some studies done, uh, like the Minnesota uh, Medical Project, um, where a study was actually conducted uh, for a six-month period, uh, where young men uh, were put under such star- uh, conditions of semi-starvation, they knew of a end date of when they would not have food. You all know, that even though you may be hungry, that you're eventually going to be able to get food. In the Ukrainian um, Holdomor-slash-genocide, they did not know when they would get food. And it was not an act of um, omission. It was an act of commission. It was actually in, intentional. There was food there. it just wasn't, It was just taken away from the people. There were decrees. It was mentioned here earlier how in the height of the famine... Uh, I believe it was June 1933, we just heard earlier today, that over 30,000 people were dying a day. Well, what's striking is that one-third of those were children. I'm a, I'm a school psychologist. I've, I've worked uh, with children. I see what happens uh, with very young children uh, when they are deprived of certain things, when they're small, uh, whether it's a detachment disorder because of lack of nurturing, uh, whether it's uh, as a consequence to fetal alcohol syndrome. I can only imagine what were the repercussions to the Ukrainian population and to the children because of this whole Demor genocide. It's really something that it's hard to fathom, but but it's true. We have effects of... um, uh, when their people were starved, it affected their cognitive abilities you know their ability to process information to hold attention to um emotional issues you know tri- PTSD, which a child could have PTSD. uh later on in life uh you would see um th- there is a chance for uh disassociation so schizophrenia um addictive behavior, self-medicating, because you're trying to repress all those memories. So I guess what I, I'd like to say is that um, I'm very grateful for the opportunity. The movie's only 15 minutes long, but I think what was wonderful is when we have shown it to people in um, parishes and camps, um, a lot of people who don't know much about Ukraine or young people they would say, wow, I had no idea. I didn't know this was real. And I think one of my, I guess, most touching moments was we showed it to a camp uh, of young people. Um, it was a Ukrainian class camp, for those of you who don't know. It's a scouting organization similar to the Boy Scouts of America. And at the end of the movie, I had a young lady come up to me, 15 years old. She had tears in her eyes, and she said, um, my baba has never talked to me about the whole of the modern, but I know she knows about it, and I'm going to make a point to find out about it. And I think that's, that's our success story, to see that the next generation is going to learn about it and talk about it. Because as Mihaela has said, um, Ukraine remembers and the world acknowledges. Thank you very much.
10: to eat. Eating makes us feel good. Mealtimes are events when the whole family or community comes together. Birthdays, picnics, holidays, and weddings. Food is also an occasion for sharing, for distributing, and giving, for the expression of altruism, whether from parents to children, or anyone, from visitors to strangers. Thus, food becomes a symbol of not only security, but friendship hard for most of us in the developed world to starve. Everywhere we look, food is available. Now, imagine being placed in a situation where
12: food is deprived. During the Holdamar, there was nothing to eat. There was nothing. Nothing in the store. Couldn't buy anything. Nothing was ever brought to us. Nobody would deliver anything to the village. Every day the brigade came, the same people each time took everything we had. They probably wondered how much longer we could last.
10: The word holodomor means basically to kill with hunger. It was a designed genocide against the Ukrainian people from 1932 to 1933. Joseph Stalin ruthlessly confiscated land, livestock, and food from peasants and farmers who refused to join collective farms. Stalin claimed the objective was to gather food and distribute it evenly throughout the Soviet Union. Tragically, he had other plans. Stalin closed the borders and forced the Ukrainians who refused to become members of government run collective farms to starve to death. In other words, Stalin used food as a weapon of mass destruction to impose government ideology. He stated the death of one person is a tragedy, the death of many is a statistic. By design, Stalin's intention was to eliminate the
15: farmers and peasants of Ukraine who opposed Soviet rule. In Ukraine, during the Holodomor, the food was taken away from the people. They had nothing to eat.
1: As one cousin related to me her horrible memories of crawling on the ground in the winter of 1932-33, scratching the frozen soil with her fingernails, trying to find a single onion to make soup for her family.
14: In a genocidal experience like that of the Holodomor, there were uh, millions of deaths. People were dropping like flies. That expression means that basically sacred human beings were becoming like insects, deprived of their God-given human dignity. Hunger affects people physically. Uh, It it causes the skin to stretch. It causes the stomach to swell. Um, Famously, it causes all kinds of other diseases. People become ill
12: from hunger.
16: Without food, the body will go through three phases of starvation. During the first phase of starvation, the body will use glycogen or sugars, which are stored in the liver and muscles, as their primary source of energy. There is enough glycogen to last about six hours between meals, and the brain in particular needs this glucose to maintain the control over the bodily functions. People become hungry and irritable when sugars are depleted. In the second phase of starvation, the body begins to burn fats. Fats or fatty acids are then metabolized by the liver to form ketone bodies, which then become the primary source of energy. During this ketosis phase, as we call it, the breath acquires a fruity odor and bodily functions slow down to conserve energy. The heart rate, respirations, temperatures all decrease but could return back to normal in the face of danger or if there is an opportunity to obtain food. Once fats are depleted, the body enters the agonizing third phase of starvation. During this phase, the body is forced to cannibalize itself by breaking down its own proteins to survive. Muscles, the largest source of protein, are used up first before internal organs are slowly eaten away. People will become weak, apathetic, and often hallucinate during this phase. This weakness makes it increasingly difficult to take a breath, walk, digest food, fight off infection, or even think people die of infection, or when the heart is simply too weak to keep on pumping. This whole process may keep people alive for up to 70 days without food.
15: Whenever we walk, whenever we move, whenever we speak, whenever we blink, we use up energy. And we receive that energy from food. It's the calories of the food that we eat.
16: Some of the physical signs of starvation you'll see... The fat's depleted around your eyeballs, so you have sunken eyeballs. The fat in your temples will also become depleted, so you have sunken in temples as well. Dryness of the skin, flaking of the skin, brittle nails. Uh, their skin becomes a little pale. Their hair becomes a little brittle as well, and they also starts losing color.
17: Psychologically, the same thing happens with thoughts. Food becomes from an overvalued idea to an obsession to becoming the dominant theme in their lives.
14: It makes people lose normal human relations, normal contacts. The law-abiding people become thieves. Um, loving mothers turn against their children. It creates almost a kind of insanity. People who become very hungry become unable to think of anything else except food. A human being is integrated, a body, a soul, a spirit, when starvation attacks the body it touches also the soul the emotions the psyche the spiritual life of the person
15: my uh, father-in-law actually lived through the holodomor many of his brothers and sisters died during the holodomor and um, they he would tell us the stories of uh, the fact that they didn't have any food at all the food was taken away from them by the nkvd they went into the woods and they try to eat things like bark and acorns, but there really isn't any caloric value to
17: those foods. And very often along the way, people who are starving begin to use what are called food substitutes, meaning grass, weeds, acorn, uh, cattle feed, uh, manure, which are at best benign, but at worst can be toxic to the body and to the brain.
15: As they had less and less calories, They felt weaker and weaker. Uh, He remembers how his mother couldn't even lift up her head off the bed. He remembers how his brothers would fall into deep sleeps and it would be very hard to wake them up. They couldn't move them. And in time, it happened that they just didn't wake up.
16: As I recall that 33rd year of horror that shattered skulls, I can't forget that time When death was by starvation Everywhere, the old and young Bare, swollen legs While nearby, a teenager Embraces his lifeless mother
10: There are two types of starvation. Marasmus is severe malnutrition from caloric deficiency.
16: Kids who, or even adults who have marasmus, look much older than they really are. So they've seen starving children, and they're their 12 or 13, they look like they're 60 or 70 years old. So even if you try to refeed people with marasmus, you have to be very careful with them because if you refeed them too quickly, they actually may die because of the fluid shifts that you provide them with the wrong type of food.
10: Quasher core is severe protein malnutrition.
16: So there's not enough protein in the diet. You can't build up uh, your organs, you can't build up your muscles. And they're very thirsty during those times and you start drinking a lot of fluid. And if you don't fluid intake uh, to the point that you start to swell, their belly will get bigger, their feet get all swollen they have stunted growth uh, their mental ability gets de- decreased as well but kwashiorkor is actually a little bit easier to treat because they're still eating something but just not eating the right types of foods but if you give them protein early enough you know, that most of them will actually get better
17: so if during the critical windows of development you deprive the brain severely you can compensate to a large degree but very often not completely there is a a cost which stays on that
18: generation. I remember they collected homeless children from the streets, and I could see them as they brought them in. We looked through the door, and they were bunk beds all through the whole thing, and they were just lying without any motion and looking at the ceiling. We could not, as children, understand it. But my mother saw going to work in the morning, how they would bring those children during the day. But in the morning, dead bodies collected and dumped in the trucks. Those people who did
15: survive the Rue and the ones that are able, were able to get through it, when they uh, started getting food again... One of the problems is that you can't go full force and eat full meals because the body has adjusted itself to having less calories, less water. Um, As you know, and we say in colloquial terms, your stomach shrinks. You can't eat as much in one sitting. So one of the things that they would have to do is eat smaller amounts more frequently and um, definitely uh, resupply their body with a lot of vitamins and nutrients that had been missing. Those people who then started getting food, if they overstuffed themselves, they sometimes became quite ill just because they were eating too much at a... Uh, right at the same time, or they weren't eating the right foods to build up their strength again. So there was a time afterwards where you had to learn how to be able to eat again so that you were eating the right foods and in the right balance to get your body back into its uh, normal functioning.
16: Even if you feed them, after about three months, they can pretty much be back to a normal state. But psychologically, that their concentrating
17: ability and their, their thought process still lags behind. But that emotion was then carried through the next two generations because they would, in their homes, often share what had happened. Even the third generation still had that horror. The other emotions they often had were fear, fear that what happened could recur again, and also a lifelong fear of speaking out. They feared being assertive. So they spent their lives, essentially, at a level below the one they wanted to operate on.
15: In the end, uh, the Holodomor took away not only the life of those people that Um, starve to death but it also took away the future generations the ability of them to uh, be born and also the ability for Ukraine to expand its population rather than decrease its
18: population. For a long time they could not even talk about sharing their thoughts but in every family there was somebody that lost life during the Holodomor. We have a mission here to let people know what hunger was and that it was artificially created uh, famine, because it was, everything was confiscated.
1: In his book, Bloodlands, Dr. Timothy Snyder, he says this was not an act of God, but of politics and therefore of humanity.
14: Standing before the phenomenon of genocide, we raise up our hands, we ask the Lord why. I think that is what people enduring and dying during the whole of the Morde did.
17: We often think that these terrible events end with the death of the afflicted individual. But we know from other work that this kind of tragedy tends to echo through the generations afterwards. And again, I would hope that some of the people in positions of power in academia Look at this in a very careful way and look for ways that have worked other systems to mitigate those effects.
14: We remember these victims. This was a man made famine, this could have been avoided.
3: Thank you, Lydia, for that presentation of the documentary and you and your husband's extraordinary work to highlight the tragic effects upon of hunger upon an individual. I think all of us are awestruck by the severity of of the documentary. Thank you. Thank you very much. Our next presentation will be a cultural performance by George Wahini. Originally from the suburbs of Chicago, his formal acting training began at the National High School Institute of Theater Arts Division at Northwestern University. He received conservatory acting training from the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art. And returning to the States, George attended Stanford University, obtaining his BA with honors. He wrote, produced, and performed in his undergraduate thesis titled Secrets of the Forest, a 13-character one-man play about Ukraine in the late 1930s and early 1940s based on the true events his grandmother lived through. He now lives in Los Angeles, working both in front as well as in back of and behind the camera. He just founded Parlay Productions, a multimedia production company. The company has several projects in development, including two projects on the whole de The whole de has become an integral part of his life's work. Please welcome George and his produc- production of A Requiem for Those Who Died of Hunger by Dmitro Pavlechko, translation by George Wahini. Thank you. Three, two, one
9: one mark a memorial for those who died of hunger a poem by Dmytro Pavlechko heaven open show your soul come down to earth all the Ukrainian villagers and farmers all those who were told to die rise up and revolt Innocent souls, shine over earth. Come down to the waters and to the lands. Build the eternal cathedral of memory to remember this 22nd year, this 32nd year, this 33rd year, this 47th year. Famine, famine, famine. The blessed work for happiness and good the bread-growing people along the banks of the Dnieper. Oh God, this is we, your plowers who tilled and sowed and prayed from dawn. As if caring for our own child, we cherished our rich land. We loved life and we respected hard work. We inhaled the rich black soil. The steps were in our blood. We did not know that the Red Satan had already condemned us to death. Ukraine woke up to a bloodstained dawn. Like wolves, assassins hired by the Red Soviet Tsar tore through villages. Freedom, truth, compassion and humanness were driven to the grave. We were dangerous because we grew our own bread. Cherry orchards bloomed like a cerement throughout the heavenly firmament. We knew that we were accepting death for the sake of Ukraine. The executioners march on and on wearing red Soviet flags. They clean out the pantry, sweeping up every last grain from the containers. Even dust. Every last trace is gone. Grain is but a fragrant past leaving Ukrainian farmers nothing but nettles and weeds. They're carrying the life away from Ukrainian homes that for centuries has been coveted, tossing still-living mothers into piles of corpses. Villagers helplessly watch the grain and the life being carried away, yet the red Soviet wolves march and march without remorse, singing so they could not hear as we groaned and cried from the depths of the unmarked graves. We will never forget, and don't you forget either, the terrible deaths that we suffered by the order of Moscow. How swollen from hunger and sickness we crawled into the cities, how with bayonets they chased us into the weeds, how we begged for the mercy of God and for the mercy of Christ. How they covertly buried people without prayer or coffin and how the depths from the graves we exhaled our last living breaths, silently cursing the tyrants to death. Mother, mother, I will soon die, don't carve up my dead brother nor my sister, for God will not allow us into heaven for such a deed. But instead, when my heart sleeps forever, Mommy, don't smother yourself with grief. Lay me down in a cherry orchard by the trees, and then lie down next to me. A golden bee will buzz overhead, and spring's cherry tree blossoms will cover our foreheads and our lips, and the dew will cleanse our eyes, quietly, like a candle. Our people burned to ash because we did not have a sword to protect protect us against foreign intruders. We have only known misery and disgrace because Almighty God decided to drop a plow from the sky and gave us a trusting and obedient soul. O nation, stand and help yourself because relying on foreigners, we will continue to perish. Your soul will once again take the path of death until you fashion a plow from that steel blade of yours. Change the barren land into golden bread. Free our souls from the tears and plight of slaves. Almighty Father, come down in our doomed fate. Wake the church bells that are buried in the ground. Almighty Father, show us your strength. Open our eyes and allow us to see the truth. Don't forget the martyrs. The millions of tortured souls who peer into your eyes from the depths of their graves. Hug them gently so as not to wake them from their eternal sleep. Allow them to rest. Protect us and our country from bloody, ill-fated evils. All of us. The living, the dead, the unborn. Your weak-growing, immortal nation.
3: Thank you, George, for that truly powerful, resounding, and emotional depiction of the poem. In 1986, the U.S. Congress formed the U.S. Commission on the Ukraine Famine, whose work was to, quote, conduct a study of the 1932 33 Ukraine famine in order to expand the world's knowledge of the famine and provide the American public with a better understanding of the Soviet system by revealing the Soviet rule. Its findings were delivered to the United States Congress on April 22nd, 1988. One of its members at large is with us this evening to provide a historical backdrop of what the United States Congress has done to recognize the Hodomar as a genocide. Please welcome Ms. Ulyana Mazurkevich.
13: Today, we are remembering. Today, we are commemorating the tragic anniversary of a horrific event. 85 years ago, Stalin and the Communist Party launched the Holodomor in an attempt to stamp out Ukrainian nationalism. How fitting it is that in the shadow of of the U.S. Congress, we have the Holodomar Memorial. How fitting it is that we find ourselves in this shadow of the United States Capitol, united in our desire to give word to the 7 to 10 million victims to whose anguished cries the world turned a deaf ear. As Mikhailo had mentioned about the famine commission. The U.S. Congress has been in the forefront of helping the truth of the holodomor emerge. In 1986, the U.S. Congress passed Public Law 99-180, thereby establishing the U.S. Congressional Commission on the Ukraine Famine of 32-33. The purpose of the commission was to expand the world's knowledge of the famine and provide the American public with a better understanding of the Soviet role in the famine. The duty of the commission was to hold hearings and to gather all available information directed against the people of Ukraine. The... The establishment of this commission was a remarkable event. I have to underscore this. This was a commission that was established not by the Diaspora. It was not the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America establishing. This was the United States Congress of America establishing a commission. And not only establishing the commission, but funding the commission, giving it money to pursue the study of the genocidal famine of 1932-33 in Ukraine. The Ukrainian community lobbied for this passage of this bill. All Ukrainian organizations lobbied. We worked very hard, and it came to fruition. the establishment of the U.S. Congressional Commission on the Ukraine Famine of 1932-33. Not only was the commission established, but called to serve in the commission were two senators, Dennis DeConcini of Arizona and Brian Dorgan of North Dakota. Five congressmen were appointed to serve on the Famine Commission, among them Congressman Dennis Hertel, William Broomfield, Benjamin Gilman, Dan Micah, Robert Kasten. Also appointed by the U.S. Congress were six public members known as commissioners. I was honored and humbled to be appointed to serve on this commission.
11: The list of biblical associations is not exhausted. Let's recall the miracle
13: and Jesus... Okay, <laughs> a little Jesus there. The Commission held public hearings throughout the United States in an effort to gather firsthand chilling recollections of those who actually experienced and survived the 1932 33 genocidal famine. Testimony was taken by the commission from 57 eyewitnesses and in-depth interviews were conducted with over 200 survivors of the Holodomor. Hearings were held in federal courts. Eyewitnesses would approach the bench as you would do in any, any federal court. You would swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. The commissioners would sit and would ask questions, the eyewitness would provide information and then expound on what needed to be answered if questions were given. Now, some of these uh, hearings were held in Washington, D.C. And the members of Congress that partook in these hearings were remarkable, Congressman Benjamin Gilman and Congressman Broomfield from um, Michigan were were absolute stars. They tried to attend every hearing. Congressman Gilman even traveled to Philadelphia. We're in Philadelphia courts. We held the hearings in a federal court with a court reporter, with the Philadelphia press being present to hear these testimonies. The hearings were also held in Arizona in Senator DeConsini's district, also in a federal court. And as you can recall, as you can probably imagine what the eyewitnesses would say. They would talk about the slow agony of starvation, the slow death. They would speak about bodies being piled on roadsides like kindling wood. And they also spoke about the silence, the silence in the villages where there was nothing human, nothing at all. They said there were no dogs barking, no sounds of cats meowing. It was this eerie, eerie, eerie silence that everywhere they were greeted with. And as one survivor mentioned, it was very poignant, and I guess it refers to all that survived the holodomor And I will quote, they took away everything from me. They took away my conscience. They took away my soul. The, com- the commission compiled Ten volumes of archival material on the famine and four volumes of the work of the commission plus 200 cassettes of testimony of survivors. In 1988, the final report was submitted and adopted by Congress. Now, in these reports, in the compilation of these uh, hearings and the reports that were published. And uh, the, uh, the director of the commission was uh, James Mace, a remarkable person who dedicated his life to the Holodomar. And um, he was uh, assisted by three paid staffers, that the United States Congress of America paid for. They paid for James Mays to do the study on the Holodomor. They paid for his staff. They paid for everything. In fact, in the mandate that we were given, and with the, that uh, James Mays hired the staff, to the uh, three um, assistants. As I mentioned, the work was quite extensive. At our initial meeting, uh, we discussed the budget allocated to the commission. And uh, the federal government has ge- had given us commissioners, the five public members, a GS-18 pay rate. The rating was so-called executive and we were to be paid for our work as commissioners. This was unacceptable to some of us. We noted that if the commission was to do its job, it would need all the necessary funds, and as members of the commission, we should not accept any pay for our services. Some of us accepted this. In fact, I also noted, I will be flying all over the United States. I will be traveling back and forth to listen to these... uh, to hold these hearings, and I do not want a penny because we need to put that money back into the work of the commission. Now, when we were doing, um, compiling all the research, we went through a lot of archival um, information that dealt with embassies and consular officials, and they were Asking, well, we've been hearing about this famine, lack of food. And they were asking the Russian government, Moscow, what is the answer? And as we have in today's playbook, the same thing happened then. What What did Moscow do? Deny, deny, deny that a famine was raging in a country that was exporting wheat to Europe. And they follow the same playbook today. They don't change the note. It is always deny, deny, deny. Now, the striking part, when the commission finished its work and presented the final report to Congress, it was stipulated that the famine the Holodomar, the the, the famine of 1932-33 was genocide. It was a genocidal famine. So from then on, all we have to do is go back. The United States Congress of America, in its commission, stated that the famine was genocide. We do not have to reinvent the wheel. The United States government stated that it was genocide directed against the people of Ukraine. Now, we are very blessed to have the United States Congress helping us on every level. I don't think any other government in any country has been as supportive of the Ukrainian position. In fact, when we were celebr- commemorating the, um, in 2007, the 75th anniversary of the Hall of the Mall, I contacted Senator Byron Dorgan. He served with me on the Famine Commission. And I said to him, wouldn't it be great if we could take all the material... The four volumes of the report that was presented to Congress, translate it into Ukrainian, and give it to the people of Ukraine. Give it to libraries, institutions of public of higher learning, etc. And he said, "And he said, wonderful idea." Now Senator Dorgan, he was a Democrat from North Dakota. And he served on the Appropriation Committee. Now, we all know what that means. That is where the funds are found. And so we were given 100000 for this project. Cave Mohila Publishing House was given the um, the task of translating, publishing, the um, report that was in English, and then it was distributed to the people of Ukraine with, there was a little tag that they put in, red, white, and blue, and it set with the friendship of the people of the United States. Thank you. Thank you.
3: Thank you. Well, Anna, thank you for your work on the Commission, truly in those turbulent last years of the Soviet Empire. And also, it's truly the Commission work is truly one of the first public attributes of Holdemort awareness in the Western world. Your work obviously speaks for itself and now is affixed in history. So thank you. Thank you very much. Next, we have a video presentation from Professor Miroslav Marinovich, the Vice-Rector of the Ukrainian Catholic University. To speak of Professor Marinovich's life and accomplishments, one would need several hours. These are some of the highlights. Under Soviet times, he was a prisoner of conscience in the Soviet Gulag, serving seven years in the notorious Perm-36 labor camp and three years of exile in Kazakhstan. Professor Marinovich was a founder of the Ukrainian Association of Amnesty International and has received numerous, numerous awards, among them the, Tragen, Tr- the Truman-Reagan Medal of Freedom from the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, the Vladimir Jabotinsky Medal from the Ukraine-Israel Society, and from Poland he received the Equestrian Order of the Cross. He is an author of various essays, numerous publications, and foreign periodicals several books on religious themes and his main interests are religious studies and national and political process please welcome by video presentation professor Miroslav Maranović
11: my best greetings to all the participants of the conference and let me start from a few moments I was one of the founding members of the so-called Ukrainian Helsinki Group, or Human Rights Monitor Group, that was established in November 1976. The principal goal of all the Helsinki groups had been to monitor the implementation of the Helsinki Accords in their human rights basket. We issued reports regarding violations of the Helsinki Accords in Ukraine and distributed them among those member states that stood out in their active efforts to defend human rights such as the United States, Canada, Great Britain, and West Germany. Foreign diplomats and journalists in Moscow were our intermediaries. It was the first non-underground group in Ukraine. We published our names and addresses, and after two months of hesitation, the authorities uh, arrested our leaders and officially warned the rest of us that we would be arrested if we do not stop our activities. We didn't stop, and predictably... I was deprived of freedom for 10 years from 1977 to 1987, uh, 7 years of forced labor camps in Perm region in Russia, and 3 years of exile in Kazakhstan. My official title was A Most Dangerous State Criminal, and I am happy to calm you down that due to this video recording, you might feel in absolute safety. Now let's turn to my main topic, I mean the crime of Holodomor, as the quintessence of crimes of communism. Let me start with a bit unusual introduction. The horror of Holodomor is so frightful that it leads to apocalyptic, biblical associations. I quote, And Cain went into the field, and Cain talked with Abel, his brother. And it came to pass that while they were in the field, Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel, thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What hast thou thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood cries unto me from the ground. Today it is Ukraine who asks the communist Cain, Where is Abel? the innocent Ukrainian peasantry slaughtered mercilessly. The list of biblical associations is not exhausted. Let's recall the miracle when Jesus fed thousands of people with a few loaves of bread. In 1833, the communist devil made the miracle in the other way around. He covered the land that was able to feed the millions with bodies of those who died of hunger it was not the hunger caused by the natural disaster it was the handmade genocide targeted into the Ukrainian nation let us switch now from the emotional biblical rhetoric to the language of the logical analysis The crime of Holodomor had been never acknowledged and repented by the Soviet regime. Vice versa, the latter made many attempts to justify it. The Putin's regime does the same today. Of course, the Russian Empire, no matter a tsarist or communist one, had always refused to acknowledge its wrongdoing. But this is not the only reason for non-repentance. We are dealing here with the consequence of the injustice caused by the 1945 Yalta Agreement. The injustice was at least twofold. Firstly, it created double standards of evaluating the crimes of totalitarian systems. Nazi crimes were publicly and totally condemned. Communist crimes were covered by security imperatives and almost freed of ethical evaluation. For many people in the West, Nazi Germany was an absolute evil, while the communist Soviet Union was a victorious good with some occasional dark spots on its shining garment. What was forgotten was the fact that the main winner of the war, the Stalin-Soviet Union, entered the war as an ally of its main begetter, Hitler's Germany. As a result, the world heard the pain of victims of the Gestapo and didn't hear that of victims of NKVD or KGB. The world has Justly horrified about the atrocities of Holocaust, and by the voice of Walter Duranti, the 1932 Pulitzer Prize winner, denied the very validity of the atrocities of Holodomor. As Leszek Kolakowski, ironically put it, was a prisoner dying in Verkuta, Siberia, to be pleased and happy with the fact that he avoided the same fate in Taha'u? The moral equation of Nazism and communism is, from my point of view, absolutely justified and even necessary. It is my moral obligation to make this statement in the memory of my prison friends who died in the Gulag. I don't want to blame the organizers of the Yalta Agreement. Politics is the art of the possible, as Otto von Bismarck said. Judgment and punishment of communist regimes were erased from political agendas. The Western Allies suggested that a numeric tool for communist crimes would be a costly mistake. Now we understand that this decision was simply the equivalent of leaving seeds of weeds in the field and hoping they would never germinate. Unfortunately, they did. And here we have the next injustice. What we have today in the world order is the consequence of the fact that the evils of the communist regimes were neither repented nor punished through a due process. The KGB regime of Putin in modern Russia is a clear reincarnation of the Dzerzhinsky's empire of the Bolsheviks. I just smell it. Moreover, the former British Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson was absolutely right while comparing Putin's logic with that of Hitler. As we say in Ukraine, they were molded from the same paste. So it is the task of mankind to do the job the Yalta Conference had postponed. I ask you not to underestimate the danger emanating from the Putin regime. There was a time when Nikita Khrushchev invented the slogan Let us catch up to America and leave it behind. The idea was to make the Soviet Union as big as the USA. Now Putin understands that it is impossible. So the goal was modified. Let us make America and the West as weak and crippled as possible and force it down to our level. So it is not only Ukraine that is under threat. The whole civilized world order is under siege. And I'm sure victims of Holodomor are calling us to put an end to underestimation of the criminal nature of communism and the danger of its
7: further siege. Thank you very much for your attention.
3: Video message by Dr. Marinovich. And how now do I best describe our next and our last presentation? Maybe the most unusual restaurant in the world. The students of the Ukrainian Leadership Academy, as a new generation of youth, wanted to find an unconventional way to communicate all the horrors of the Hodomor to an international audience using the language of creativity. While people may not understand Ukrainian, they may speak different languages, but there is one language understood anywhere in the world and that is the language of hunger. And through it, the Ukrainian Leadership Academy explains to its international audience what Ukrainians had to go through during the times of the Holodomor. The project team interviewed Holodomor survivors and collected the ingredients they had to eat during the Holodomor. Based on their memories, a famous Ukrainian chef created three recipes. To preserve the authenticity of the idea, the team brought with them original Ukrainian products, and for one day, students of the Ukrainian Leadership Academy opened a pop-up restaurant in Brussels, Belgium. The results were outstanding. Over 50,000 media hits in one day, over 650,000 views on Facebook alone, more than 150 media publications, including Politico and Deutsche Welle. In one day, the restaurant was visited by over 1,000 people from 20 countries, including members of the European Parliament, bloggers, correspondents, and journalists. 97% of the visitors did not know about the Holdemort before this encounter. Social media response from opinion makers and members of the European parliament were sympathetic to the concept of the awareness campaign for Holdomor, and invitations to to hold similar events from 10 countries throughout the world. Ladies and gentlemen, may I present to you the Ukrainian Leadership Academy's project entitled, Uncounted, Since 1932.
0: The Holodomor was the artificial famine made by the Soviet Union to destroy the Ukrainian nation.
16: The
0: exact number of victims is unknown. However, we are talking about 7 million people in the very least.
18: 2018
0: is the 85th anniversary of the Holodomor. To remind the world about the terrible tragedy, we chose the only language that is understood anywhere, the language of hunger. We created an idea of the worst restaurant in the world and named it in the memory of all uncounted victims of the Holodomor uncounted since 1932. Only three dishes were served. Soup made of pine cones, bread made of ground grass, and pancakes made of tree bark. These recipes were based on the memories of the Holodomor survivors. We sent the invitations with these ingredients to the members of the European Parliament, bloggers, and journalists. Finally, for one day, we opened a restaurant in the very heart of Europe,
3: you can't really swallow it. Yeah. It was uh, really uh, a huge crime against humanity, against Ukraine. I want to understand something more about this uh,
5: history, this tragedy, but I cannot do this. Point, so. I understand your struggle for
4: justice. I really feel sorry.
0: In one day, Uncounted was visited by over a thousand people, but most importantly, it encouraged millions to talk about the tragedy that has no expiration date.
3: We will not be able to understand Ukrainians and what they are doing today if we are not able to understand this part of common European history. Voldemort. On behalf of the U.S. Committee for Ukrainian Holodomor Genocide Awareness and the Embassy of Ukraine, co-sponsors of this afternoon's inaugural events, uh, um, concluding events for the 85th anniversary of the Holodomor, I would like to thank all of its participants, staffers, embassies, community organizations, and a special thank you to our featured speakers and presenters who have helped to appropriately honor the victims of the Ukrainian genocide and to uphold the slogan, We Shall Always Remember. Also, a special gratitude to the Heritage Foundation for sponsoring us in their premises this afternoon. Ladies and gentlemen, we are approaching the conclusion of our commemorative program. Please join us for a symbolic reception in the foyer of simple bread and water to symbolize the lack of food the the Ukrainian nation had to endure during the years of the whole everyone is welcome to join us thank you good evening Ukraini.